Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of A Novel Review, a literature podcast unearthing the world of literature one book at a time. My name is Seamus and today I will be discussing the French novella The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. But before I fly into this story, a little mantelpiece moment which is a chance to highlight something fun or artistic throughout the week with you guys. I have recently moved from Sydney to London and with every move comes that fun part of finding a new job. And since coming to London, I've been keeping a, it's not a daily diary, but it's sort of a way to pencil down a scene from my day. And the point of it is to sort of capture something from my day that, you know, I can then sort of write down and and keep my writing skills or, or hone my writing skills in a way that it's a bit creative while also recording something from my life. So this is one that happened the other day as I was going for a job interview. And it goes a little something like this. Another job interview. The question, do you think you'll be good at this job? My answer, I will endeavour to. They kind of frown at this, but how is one to answer? I've read a 200 word summation of what the job is, and they have enthusiastically ensured me that there is much more to it than that. Well, Christ, how am I meant to know if I'll be good at a job that you so clearly shroud in mystery? I ask, Can I ask what the job actually is and looks like before we continue? Their response, there will be an opportunity at the end for your questions. And I entitled this one, Job Interviews for Jobs I Don't Even Want. And uh, so I hope that sort of gives you an idea of what I'm trying to do here. It's just, you know, a little scene from my day, just trying to capture it. You know, nothing, nothing flamboyant, nothing too special. Just penciling down one little scene from the day and seeing how that sort of comes out on the page. Okay, on with the show, the reason you have gathered here, The Little Prince. Uh, Should we start with some facts about it? Mm, Yeah, I think so. It was released in 1943 in America and England, but funnily enough, it it was actually banned in France, along with all of Exuberi's work, as a result of the Vichy regime. And sadly, it actually wasn't published in France until after Exuberi's death, which is quite a big shame because this was, or this is considered his masterpiece. It's sold currently around 140 million copies worldwide, which is, which which places it as one of the highest grossing books of all time, which is absolutely incredible. But I find this one actually a bit more incredible is that it's been translated into 505 languages, only second to the Bible, which is pretty incredible when you actually think about that it's the second most translated book to the Bible. I mean, I don't know, you don't really, like when it comes to literature, I don't really consider the Bible as part of literature canon because it just seems to be you know that step above everything but being second to the bible i mean that's fair enough that's great fantastic and of course this was his most famous work which i'll probably touch on a bit later in the episode but for now they are just sort of some key facts to to place it in context obviously being released in 1943 that's the middle of world war ii that's a talking point for themes running throughout and what's interesting is we can see a culmination of Antoine's life all sort of building to this moment and coming together for this novella. 
So perhaps maybe before I move on, I'll do a quick overview just so that when I discuss a few more of the points in depth, you've got an understanding of what's actually happening in this book. The narrator opens this story by drawing a boa constrictor that has been eaten by an elephant, and when he shows it to adults, they misinterpret it to something more reasonable, and so the narrator learns not to talk to adults about important things. The narrator grows up and eventually becomes an airplane pilot, crashing into the Sahara Desert, and as he's trying to fix his plane, he unexpectedly meets the little prince, who repeats questions until they are answered. From here, the little prince talks about his life story, from starting on planet B612. He leaves the planet after not feeling appreciated by the rose he tends to on his planet on a daily basis, and we also learn that he sweeps his three volcanoes, two of which are active, and the third he sweeps as well because you never know, and he also pulls out boab trees when they first take root. So as he leaves, he ventures to six different worlds, all comically exploring the narrow-minded aspects of adults. I won't go into detail about each planet, but each are quite sombre in tone, and they are viewed as ridiculous to the little prince until he moves along, eventually ending up on Earth. So I think that's probably where I'll leave the overview. I'll do my best to explore without spoiling, however, I do make no promises. Now, I routinely read this book, guys. It's it's a novella. It's incredibly short and sharp and fun. It's whimsical, but it's grounding, and that's probably why I keep coming back to it. It's wonderfully, it's wonderful in its simplicity, and the simplicity grounds you and recenters you. And you know, something I love about it is it takes, I mean, I think it's 94 pages, so it takes only, you know, an hour and a half, maybe two hours tops to read. And I think that's sort of part of the reason why whenever I'm feeling lost and you know, I feel like I need to read this book. I think that's sort of one of the key aspects is that it is so short and that's why it's able to refocus me so much because when I do turn to read this book, I do it in one sitting. You know, I turn my phone off. I make sure I'm sitting in a comfortable spot where I'm not going to be disturbed. And so for that hour to hour and a half to two hours, I'm just in the world of the little prince and able to separate the world from literature and not only do i get a dose of the simple beauty in life and the appreciation of what's true through what this story explores but i also get a chance to disconnect from society and fall into this story among the stars which is you know an incredibly important thing now where do we even begin when it comes to this book there's so many themes to address let's start with the plane crash in the sahara because this is actually really fascinating and this is essentially where the story kicks off What's fascinating about this scene is that it was directly influenced from Antoine's own experience of crashing into the Sahara. In 1935, Antoine and his co-pilot André Prevost were taking place in an aircraft race that had a prize of 150,000 francs, which, and I'm going to be honest guys, I actually really struggled to find an accurate currency converter because, like I don't know why, but the Swiss franc is still in circulation, so I think that, that when you type in that into Google, it gets a little confused. But from my rough estimation, I think it's around six thousand US dollars. So, it's you know it's a fair chunk of money, but it's not that much. But back then, obviously, it would have been you know a, a lot different and perhaps even life changing. Now, both pilots actually survived the plane crash, which was probably the first miracle, or was definitely the first miracle. But the the true story comes because they managed to survive a few days in the desert with only a few grapes, a thermos of coffee, a single orange, and some wine which, you know, I mean, coffee and wine are not exactly hydrating liquids. It's the Sahara Desert. It's bloody hot. I've been there. It was, when I was there, it was, how hot was it? 47 in the day and 37 at night. 37 degrees, I'm talking. 47 degrees and 37 degrees at night, which is bloody, bloody hot. 
Um, but it wasn't until the fourth day that they were actually found by a Bedouin who administered a native rehydration treatment, and this actually saved both their lives. Now, this account is harrowingly detailed in his 1939 memoir, Terre d'Homme, or in English because my French sucks, Wind, Sand and Stars. Now, what's fascinating about this is you can see the foundations of fantasy and wonder in this piece that you know directly goes into Feed the Little Prince. Wind, Sand and Stars is such a rich piece of literature, and I think lots of people, you know, don't read it, but I think a lot of people don't even know it exists because it's lost in the shadows of the Little Prince. And one of its sort of more harrowing aspects of it is that there isn't anything to actually be angry at because it's, it's not a war. It's not man fighting man. There is no drive or challenge beyond your own life. It's man against nature. And nature is so, so apathetic to your struggles that it really hits home the clarity of the world we inhibit. And it's a testament to the human endeavor and experience and what humanity can survive as well, which is, you know, sometimes the boundaries of humanity are so tested and none more so than in this. Another really, I guess, fascinating aspect of this is the little prince, or whenever anyone writes a book, it's always a culmination of different layers of the author's life that have gone into, you know, to build layer upon layer of personal experience. And it's kind of fun to sort of sit above it in the sense that we're past it, we're past his life, and we can look down upon it from the position of history. And so because of that, we can trace the origins and, and make sense of moments that he himself might not have even understood at the in that particular moment. So here's a quote from Wind, Sand and Stars, and Exuberi writes, Behind all these torments, there is an orchestration of fatigue and delirium, and everything is being transformed into a picture book, a slightly cruel fairy story. And so he's written this and published it in 1939, and that's a fascinating line because it, it, it's, it's what he was feeling at the moment. You know, you think you're going to die of dehydration in the Sahara Desert. And it's sort of difficult in that moment to see how big something can be and how how it can influence something without even understanding it. And anyone that's read The Little Prince knows that he has also illustrated a lot of images that appear throughout the story. But it's also funny that he calls this episode a slightly cruel fairy story, which then, of course, he transforms. He takes this idea of pain, which is such a such a beautiful thing to take this this moment of pain and struggle and human suffering and turn it into this really wonderful childish exploration of the human endeavor and and almost human stupidity in a sense you know a few episodes ago i spoke about how it's difficult in the moment to understand how something can influence your life and whenever we look back on the past we always think if we could just change one small thing about it about the past, you know, how, how that would influence and change the future so dramatically. And yet whenever we're in the present, we never understand those small moments as being so influential upon the future. So it's always fascinating to look back and sort of almost tear wind, sand and stars apart uh, line by line and actually see the foundations of the little prince forming. So I don't know, let's crash into the little prince now. Too soon, you'll be fine just like Antoine was. <laughs> This is a fantastic little book, and I think it actually has a lot of wonderful depth to it. And, you know, like I just explored some of the depth there, but let me be clear. There's, there's actually so much happening here, and I think a lot gets passed over you. Some people read it thinking it's just a children's story. Some people read it for the innocence, some for the love, some for the contemporary issues. And look, I mean, there's no right or wrong answer here. All are great, but I'll try and unpack or touch on at least most of them. And this is very bold, I know. 
Firstly, I just want to give a shout out because there's something incredibly rich about children's stories because the writer can't write from an adult perspective as a child. They actually have to write and recapture and embody the innocence of a child in order to be successful. And I think there's something in that that we should all appreciate. So let's start with some of the deeper interpretations of the novel and what they mean and how they, and how they are wrapped up in this childish wonder. Speaking of the human experience, one can't ignore the fact that this book was released during World War II. I might now read a passage from the story and then discuss it in a bit more depth. In effect, there were on the little prince's planet, as in every planet, good plants and bad plants. And consequently, there were good seeds from good plants and bad seeds from bad plants. But seeds, as everyone knows, are invisible. They sleep in the secrecy of the earth until one of them suddenly decides to wake up. So it stretches itself and timidly at first extends towards the sun, a ravishing innocent little shoot. If this happens to be a sprig of radish or the beginnings of a rose bush, you can leave it to grow wherever it wishes. But if it turns out to be a bad plant, you must root it up at once, the very instant you recognise it. Now, there were some terrible seeds on the little prince's planet, namely those of the boab tree. The soil of the planet was infested with them, and a boab, if you tackle it too late, can never be got rid of afterwards. It clutters everything. It will bore right through the planet with its roots, and if the planet is too small and the boabs are too numerous, they will finally make the planet explode. The boabs in this passage, at least the way I read the passage, is Nazism. Bad seeds that sprout, but importantly, it discusses how boabs start off small, and when they are small, they are easily handled. It's only when we turn our backs upon them, upon these ideas, upon these boabs, do they sprout and take root in, in this sense, in the planet, but in society, and from there they are much harder to control. Now, of course, this is an easy read given the book was released in World War II, but it also can be applied to sort of a large aspect of life that, you know, for instance, when a, I don't know, a child hits another child or swears, we tell them off and discipline them and help them in, we discipline them in that moment so that in the long run, they become more appropriate and kind individuals participating in society. So it's, it's, that, it's that kind of aspect, but obviously coming out in World War II, it's easy to see how Nazism could be the reason for this. I mean, especially since all his writings banned in France as well, which is, you know, quite a big thing. But also running through this story, there's the honesty of death. And this culminates in the ending. Now, I won't spoil the ending, but the little prince says that his body is just a shell for his existence. Now, that's a beautiful idea, but this line and subsequent idea is said to have been inspired from Antoine's own brother, who on his deathbed is quoted to having said, don't worry, I'm all right. I can't help it. It's my body. And it's this really mature, nice, poignant idea. Our souls aren't dying, just our bodies. And it's the idea that death can hold some dignity and future for us that is really inspiring and also comforting in these moments. But of course, these are just some of the reasons that feed into the actual reasons I return to this book. While good and adding a surprising amount of depth to a book, the reason I come back to this book is the childish sense of wonder, that unheeded inspiration and questioning. Particularly in the opening passage of the boa constrictors eating an elephant, confused for a hat. It's so whimsical, it's so funny, and yet the older you get, it becomes sad. Not so much for the innocence of it all, but the idea that the sense and wonder of questioning the faculties of the world are fading. Children ask any questions because they haven't been shut off by reality, by society. And that's, you know, it's, it's so important that we foster these sort of questions and encourage them. 
And this is really a testament to Antoine's writing, to elicit such an honest portrayal of a child's point of view while probing the truth of adult life. There is nothing quite as exposing of the ridiculousness of the world than a child's directed questions. But these directed questions take skill to unearth. Now, a few weeks ago I read a a quote from Ann Patchett's The Dutch House, and I'll read it again now because I think it sort of navigates this struggle quite well. Patchett writes, But we overlay the present into the past. We look back through the lens of what we know now, so we're not seeing it as the people we were. We're seeing it as the people we are, and that means the past has been radically altered. It's an interesting idea when given some thought. How much of your past can you actually remember, and not just remember from the stories told about the moment, but how it actually was? The thought processes, the ideas that were created. Evelyn Waugh, in an interview that I watched the other day with him, spoke about this moment in his life that happened as he was a child. And he said he couldn't remember this particular thing in his life, yet his parents never let him forget it. And therefore he had a constructed memory of what had actually happened, but he was quite frank in admitting that it wasn't his own memory. And there's something interesting about not being able to remember it, but conversely not being able to forget it. But also running through this story is the simple beauty that the world is quite attainable, and while our childhoods may be over, the curiosity and appreciation doesn't have to be. Here's another quote from The Little Prince that I think details it really beautifully. Where you come from, said The Little Prince, people grow 5,000 roses in one garden, and they still do not find what they are looking for. No, they do not find it, I replied. Yet what they are looking for could be found in a single rose or a handful of water. Some people are really critical of this book, and like I, I kind of get it. I can see why. It critiques modern life in a very simplistic way, and a lot of the issues are actually much more multifaceted. They're they're, they're quite large and complex, and we can't survive in this modern world on love alone. But does that mean we actually have to simplify? Does that mean we have to disqualify the love of small things from our life? Simple pleasures that recalibrate who we are as humans? A book and a coffee, art in the park, a walk in the sun or the rain, all of it is beautiful. These things that cost barely anything, but are investments of our time, and more importantly, what Exuberi is trying to detail in those investments, friendship. This novel is about love between two people, not necessarily a romantic way, but a friendship. This leans back to the idea of death and finality. Friends cannot be bought, they are earned, and your return on that investment is their time, their thoughts, their love. The idea is not to live forever, but to live happily and be a positive force among your friends, even after you're gone. But just quickly returning to this idea of small things and appreciating the little things. This line, yet what they are looking for, could be found in a single rose or a handful of water. A handful of water. Now, this of course is on the back of, you know, Exuberi's writing this story inspired from his events in the Sahara Desert. It's kind of that wonderful, subtle, added depth that really rounds out this story. This story was written from someone who actually survived and lived these kind of moments in quite a harsh and austere situation. And again, I think it's just those little moments, you know, a handful of water, that in those moments he would have really, really loved a handful of water. And it's just these these simple lines that I think really add a, a wonderful depth to this story. But getting back now to the ideas of friendship. A friend offered some advice the other week, and he didn't even really offer it. He just kind of said it in passing, and he said, life doesn't have to be a struggle. 
and I don't think he realised how simple and beautiful it was. Now, of course, he wasn't commenting on people who are struggling through life, you know. Life doesn't have to be that hard if you just do this. He's not being an idiot, you know. He, he's aware of the, 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 the rising cost of living, inflation, etc., etc. He didn't mean it to touch on the woeful things in the world because we don't need any more of that. But it was more the idea that while it's good to have structure, you can break free and be guilt-free. You can stay up late. You can wake up late. The world won't end because one day your world will end. Claude Monet once said, Everyone discusses my art and pretends to understand, as if it were necessary to understand, when it's simply necessary to love. And it's the same with this book. Some people, when I've spoken to them about it, are really up in arms about it, saying things like, it's not high-class literature, it's childish, it's a children's book. Like, yes, that's exactly the point of it. It's not trying to be the best written book ever. Indulge a little in the story. In the ideas, not everything has to be a struggle for meaning. Here's another quote from the book. It goes, The people? There are some, I believe. Maybe six or seven. I caught sight of them several years back, but one never knows where to find them. The wind drives them hither and thither. You see, they have no roots, which makes life very difficult for them. And in this quote, I think he's talking about how We chase things, we chase meaning, and again, this can be directly inspired from the crash, I think, because in those moments where he's on the first, second, third day of living in the Sahara Desert or starving in the Sahara Desert, you know, he's gotten to the stage where he's stopped sweating, when his tongue would feel like the Sahara itself. In those moments, he's probably questioning and thinking, was it worth it? Did I really need to chase this victory? For this competition? Did I really need the money? Did I need to chase it? And it's a double-edged sword, I get that, because exploration, innovation, these kind of ideas help propel society forward. And I don't think he's saying you shouldn't you should just accept your lot in life and be, you know, comfortable in what you've been given. But what I think Exubery is trying to elicit is that we should appreciate the journey you are taking more than the desired outcome. And I think that's a really beautiful sentiment, and I think that's a great place to kind of end without spoiling any more of the book. So that was Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's The Little Prince. A rating? Uh, well, for me, it has to be a five. I mean, it's it's probably the book I've read the most in my life because it is so short. It's definitely up there in the, in, in the higher echelons of what I consider you know wonderful literature that I'll read for the rest of my life. So for me, it's an easy five out of five. So what am I reading this week? This week I've started to read As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. And this comes on the back of last week's episode, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. His three biggest influences, they say, were Faulkner, Melville, and Hemingway. And I've read Melville, I've read Hemingway, but I'd actually never read William Faulkner. So I thought, yeah, like I've just done an episode, like it'd be fascinating to go back and and, and sort of one of the joys of literature is being able to read and discover your favorite authors, but also read what influenced them. So I decided to read this one. Why this book in particular, you're probably asking. No reason other than on the Kindle store, all his books were like $15 and this one was 89 cents. So um, yeah, look, it's fascinating. It's it, it, it's a bit confusing because I think there's 16 point of views telling a story and you know, I, I need to almost have a document detailing who the characters are and their relation to each other. It's a bit clunky and I think that's kind of disconnecting me a bit, but it's still good. I can definitely see I'm not going to say threads of McCarthy because he's he's the one that took influence from this, but I can see where McCarthy has taken threads of influence from. So pretty interesting. Maybe I'll do an episode on it soon. I don't know. 
I'll, I'll see how I go and when I get to the end, how I feel. So on that quote, I thought I'd finish today's episode by actually reading just a passage from Winsand and Stars. And I think I read this a long time ago in one of the earlier podcast episodes, but it's actually just, you know, it's, it, it's such a beautiful piece of literature that it's, it's definitely worth a second read. So if this next passage tickles your fancy, I mean, go read Winsand and Stars. I think it's incredibly underrated. So here's the passage. And even if the journey is a pleasant one, the pilot flying alone somewhere on his section of that route is not simply a witness to a scene. He is not admiring the colours of the earth and sky, the marks of the wind on the sea, the gilded clouds of twilight. They are the objects of his meditation. Just as the rustic farmer walking over his land foresees in a thousand signs the coming spring, the danger of frost, the prospect of rain, so the professional pilot deciphers signs of snow, signs of fog, signs that the night will be a blessed one. His machine, which at first seemed to distance himself from the greater questions of nature, in fact subject him even more rigorously to them. Alone within the vast tribunal that is the stormy sky, the pilot is a contention for his mailbags with three elemental divinities, mountain, sea, and storm.